Welcome to Too Much Information, in which I will attempt to provide you with the who's who and what's when of every single episode, that's episode, not story, of Doctor Who. This is a podcast for everyone, with even the most passing interest in Doctor Who. A jump-in point for those of you lucky enough to be discovering the episodes for the very first time, or a mine of consolidated info, trivial nuggets, and fanish observations to pique the interest of even the most jaded Old Eternal. I'm going to go through the series one episode at a time, outlining the basics, nailing down the facts, throwing the spotlight onto the unexplored, and generally being enthusiastic. I come to praise the Doctor, not to bury them with the difference of opinion being weaponized and umbrage of increasing currency i shall be using my little corner of the internet to bombard you with positive irons and to beat happiness into you with facts and observations and names and dates and stuff you didn't know you cared about not that i can guarantee you will care about them once you've heard them but i hope so and one good solid hope is worth a cartload of certainties And today we start at the very beginning, the unbroadcast pilot of An Unearthly Child. So join me, Toby Haydock, as I guide you into the who, what and when of Doctor Who, An Unearthly Child, the pilot episode. This is the first go at making Doctor Who. During recording, they did the second half of the episode twice. Nevertheless, it was deemed unsuitable for broadcast and would be remounted a month later in a revised form. And that would be the first ever episode of Doctor Who on the 23rd of November, 1963. But the road to the Cave of Skulls, uh, that's episode two, was paved with good intentions, bad ideas, wobbly doors and an unrepeated sojourn into the 49th century. The pilot, or the slightly more unearthly child than the one we ended up with, was first broadcast on, well, it was actually first broadcast on the 26th of August, 1991, on BBC Two. Um, we'll come to that. It starred William Hartnell as Doctor Who, William Russell as Ian Chesterton, Jacqueline Hill as Barbara Wright, and Carol Ann Ford as Susan Foreman. It was written by Anthony Coburn, produced by Verity Lambert, and directed by Warris Hussain. Two affable schoolteachers who really should get married one day Ian Chesterton and Barbara Wright are suitably intrigued by one of their pupils, Susan Foreman, to follow her home. She has proved to be extremely advanced at some subjects, yet woefully inept at others. Her home appears to be a junkyard. She goes inside and vanishes, and when Ian and Barbara follow, they find, amongst the bric-a-brac, a police box, which seems to hum with power. Before they can investigate further, an old man arrives, insisting that they leave his property. He is the Doctor, apparently. Doctor Who. With this episode and next week's, my balancing of the content of this is made all the more difficult by something for which we should all be grateful. These episodes exist. So does a lot of the paperwork. Countless people have been interviewed about them, and their historical significance means that they have been scrupulously picked over. Now, I'm hoping I've got my balance correct, and I'm sure you'll tell me if I haven't. And hey, if it turns out that none of us like this, I can always re-record it with fewer mistakes and a friendlier central character. I'll even let you buy me a Chinese meal in order to tell me everything that you hate about it. But for now, let's get to grips with... The When. I have released a supplemental podcast to this one, 
which outlines the pre-history of Doctor Who, all the developments that perhaps don't affect directly what you see on screen in the pilot, but are worth listening to anyway. But as for the pilot itself, well, 1960. Yep, I'm going for 1960, around May, as the time when the first footage for Doctor Who is actually produced. BBC technician Norman Taylor claims to have discovered the effect of signal howl round, pointing a camera at a monitor and creating visual feedback, the visible equivalent of the noise when two conflicting mics or speakers get too close to each other. Receding patterns of billowing white clouds and swirls break out, and so Taylor takes these findings to colleague Ben Palmer. Palmer then experiments with the technique and uses it in a production of Tobias and the Angel, which is where future Doctor Who producer Verity Lambert ultimately sees it. Now, some reports have Palmer using it in early 1951 for a production of Amal and the Night Visitors. I have, after much digging, rejected this theory. The 1951 definitely, and the production, for there were other versions of Amal and the Night Visitors, cautiously. I have, however, dug up a copy of Tobias and the Angel, odd to see something no one has seen in 60 years, just to ascertain whether it has bits of prenatal Doctor Who in it. And there it is, that vertical, soaring stripe. The very start of Doctor Who's first title sequence is used in the opening and closing moments of Tobias and the Angel, superimposed over the action. The production was broadcast on the 19th of May, 1960, and Ben Palmer received a special credit on it. There's other howl round there too, but nothing further that was to be employed by Doctor Who, because that stuff came from another session, as we shall see. As I said, I'm still investigating, but I'm cautiously ruling Amal and the Night Visitors out as the source of the original Who howl round. It would mean that the vertical stripe was made for Amal and used later for Tobias, but I doubt this for reasons too detailed to examine here. Just trust me. But whenever it was done, the vertical cloud surging upwards, seen at the very beginning of Doctor Who's first titles, was produced during Palmer's first experiments. And so the first footage ever shot for the programme, even though Doctor Who was yet to be a gleam in Sidney Newman's eye, was done here and now. Oh, yeah, Sidney Newman. Meet Sidney Newman, the fast-talking Canadian. He's going to whisk us forward in time now, appropriately, to when he joins the BBC as head of drama in December 1962 and inherits an ongoing investigation into the potential of science fiction as a vehicle for a continuing series. And then, on the 26th of March, 1963, Donald Wilson, who despite being a very different animal from Newman, has been promoted by him to head of drama in Newman's radical structural shake-up of the BBC's drama department, writers Alice Frick, John Braben and C.E. Webber sow the first seeds for Doctor Who's pilot episode. Wilson suggests a time machine and a central core of characters. Webber, an eccentric fellow with no liking for authority, is charged with working out who these central characters should be. 29th of March. And so Webber sketches out a male and female lead, a handsome young man and a handsome, well-dressed heroine, and a third character, a maturer man with a character twist. They are scientific troubleshooters and their lab is envisaged as a mixture of the very old and the very new. Early April 1963. Newman wants the show to have an educational bent, but finds Webber's ideas too highbrow and corny. He hates the troubleshooter's idea and adds a younger character, a kid, who can get into trouble. Webber acquiesces and goes into detail about his central quartet in his next attempt. Biddy, as described by Webber, is a with-it 15-year-old. She is eager for life, lower than middle class although dialect is to be avoided, instead a neutral accent laced with the latest teenage slang is what Weber suggests, practically inventing Ace 25 years too early. 
Miss Lola McGovern, a schoolteacher. Timid, but capable of sudden rabbit courage. Modest, with plenty of normal desires. Is added to the mix. She, sadly, for those of us from the future, tends to be the one who gets into trouble. Her colleague Cliff is a gorgeous dish who can be brainy in a diffident sort of way. Oh, and then there's the lead character. A frail old man lost in time and space. He seems not to remember where he is from, but is either searching or fleeing from something or both. Oh, by the way, in this document, and for the very first time, that frail old man is known only as Doctor Who. Friday the 26th of April. The opening serial of the proposed new science fiction series Doctor Who starts to trouble the BBC schedules. It is initially slotted in to start recording on July the 5th and to broadcast on July the 27th. The budget is to be £2,300 per episode with an extra £500 for the spaceship which will convey the central characters through time and space. That sounds fair, but these figures turn out to be crucial to the future development of the show and its near cancellation at birth. May 1963. At some point around now, Rex Tucker is appointed producer of Doctor Who. 50-year-old Tucker is an experienced hand. 13 years and several hundred hours worth of TV under his belt and radio before that. He joined the BBC in 1937. Tucker holds some early development meetings. C.E. Bunny Webber, who has been developing the Bible for the series, is an old colleague, so there are no problems there. A behind-the-scenes team begins to assemble, including the technically-minded Mervyn Pinfield, a member of the BBC's Langham Group, experimenters in TV technique, and a new young director and former actor, Richard Martin, a dashing, confident young intellectual who thinks Doctor Who is a terrible idea and isn't afraid to say so. Nor is he to invoke the sort of names who should be influencing the show, sci-fi giants like John Wyndham and Ray Bradbury. Australian writer Anthony Coburn is also engaged at around this time by Wilson to chip in ideas and script an early serial. He has written for Knight Errant Limited, Dr Finlay's Casebook and a one-off called The Watching Cat, which starred an actress by the name of Jacqueline Hill. May the 15th. Weber drafts a new set of guidelines for the now delayed show. It's not going to be ready for July. The clock is reset. The 2nd of August will be the day the show begins filming, and if Weber has anything to do with it, Biddy will now be either Gay, Jill, Janet or Jane, or one of his two favourites, Mandy or Sue. It is in this document that the idea that Doctor Who's ship be disguised as a police box appears for the first time. Coburn has subsequently been given credit for this, but in terms of paper trail, it's Weber's document, prepared, it has to be said, as a result of various unminuted meetings with unverified attendees, that debuts the blue box. Also, though it looks impressive, writes Weber, it is an old, beat-up model which Doctor Who stole when he escaped from his galaxy in the year 5733. It is uncertain in performance and needs repairing. Doctor Who has forgotten how to work it, so they have to learn by trial and error. The first story is still intended to be Weber's The Giants, which has all four regulars being transported to the male teacher's science lab, but reduced in size, and so everyday objects and creatures become lethal. Wilson puts a line through Weber's description of the Doctor and alters the description of the Doctor's vehicle from the machine to the ship. May the 16th. Weber produces another document, which Wilson amends, and this results in a rigorous proposition for, and I quote, an exciting adventure fiction drama series for children's Saturday viewing. And several core ingredients are in place. 25-minute episodes, each with their own title, four to ten-part stories, strong cliffhangers, and as for our four characters, Sue is sharp, intelligent, quick and perky. She has a crush on Cliff, despite him having the same name as 
Cliff Richard, who she thinks is a square. Cliff is now a physically perfect science teacher aged 27, whilst 25-year-old history mistress Lola McGovern experiences undercurrents of antagonism with Sue because Lola also admires Cliff. These are our identification figures because the central character is a mystery. Doctor Who. The humans call him Doctor Who because they don't know his name. He's about 650 years old. He's frail-looking but wiry and tough like an old turkey. He's bewildered but also capable of malignance and can be paranoid about his travelling companion's motives. His memory is fractured and he doesn't know where he came from. But he gets snippets of reminders. He has maybe been involved in a galactic war from which he is fleeing. This document, which contains many of the fundamental aspects of the show, is credited to Wilson, Webber and Newman. The latter, who has had final say on all the ideas, is satisfied and sends these to his boss, Donald Baverstock. The show is to hit the screens on August the 24th. The weekly recordings are scheduled to start on Friday the 2nd of August, though a month earlier they are to make a pilot on the 19th of July at Lime Grove, with any necessary pre-filming carried out on around July the 8th. If the pilot doesn't quite work, there is already provision to remount it two weeks later if necessary. Discussions have been held with other writers who are enthusiastic. The mooted science fiction series is now a tangible, going concern. Doctor Who exists, and in the words of Donald Baverstock, it's looking great. This, however, is not to be the view of some of his colleagues. June 1963. 10th of June. Coburn is working on script number two about the Stone Age, whilst Weber has been progressing with the Giants idea. But what he produces is causing increasing frustration for Newman. There's also a fear that it won't be practicable, and as the mooted recording dates are now drawing closer, Wilson opts to bring Coburn's Stone Age serial forward, ask the Australian to prepare a second story, and abandon the Giants. And with that, C.E. Cecil Edwin Bunny Webber, one of Doctor Who's principal architects, leaves the project and never returns to it. He won't be the last casualty. 13th of June. The first eight episodes of Doctor Who are confirmed to be recorded at Lime Grove Studio D, the last place anyone involved in mounting the show wants to find themselves in. Doctor Who's demands on equipment and the design department are also ruffling feathers within the BBC. Oh, and talking of feather ruffling, another breeze is caused by the entrance of a young woman known to Newman from ABC, Verity Lambert, a trendy and ambitious 26-year-old who has been appointed to produce Doctor Who. Newman, stung by his experiences with the old guard since joining the BBC, wants someone with piss and vinegar and a keen sense of the now. Lambert has no experience in producing or writing or directing, but she is intelligent and neither gives nor takes nonsense. Donald Wilson, cautious and reserved by nature, is somewhat nonplussed by the engagement, and with the show already irritating various department heads, it feels like Doctor Who has been conceived with the sole purpose of annoying the entire BBC. Tucker, despite the arrival of Lambert, is still on board as the first serial's director and presumably some sort of advisory or supervising producer. He does not hit it off with Lambert, however. They don't agree on anything. This compounds Lambert's unease on arriving for work at a time when the two men who either hired or backed her or both, Sidney Newman and Donald Wilson, are on leave. A friend at least materialises in the shape of a young university-educated British Asian called Warris Hussain, who is brought in to direct Serial 2. 14th of June. Anthony Coburn is formally commissioned to write the first four episodes, 
the last three of which will be his Stone Age idea, whilst the first will be an establishing instalment based on Weber's notes. Coburn is a staff writer, and his hiring is justified by the expediency with which the scripts are required. And he's also commissioned for the second story because, having written the first, and because they are now running out of time, he is the person best placed to do it. The series is now looking to launch on September the 7th. 17th of June. Doctor Who continues to be sketched on paper, and the beginnings of what viewers were eventually to see start to become more discernible. Coburn's draft script is called Doctor Who and The Tribe of Gum. Miss McGovern and the artist formerly known as Cliff, but who is now C.E. Chesterton, after G.K. Chesterton, the writer whom Coburn so admires, become intrigued by their pupil, Susan, or Suzanne Foreman. The script follows the pattern of what will eventually be broadcast in many places. There are some differences. Chesterton, thinking he has previously met the Doctor, but cannot remember exactly when or why or how, is explained away by the Doctor telling him he has wiped his memory by giving him a cigarette laced with a special mind-wiping drug. If that did end up in the episode, the BBC presumably handed out special mind-wiping cigarettes in order to help us all to forget that it did. The ship is described as a change and dimensional electronic selector and extender. Somebody has certainly been smoking something, and the Doctor's race have apparently been under attack by some folk called the Paladins. Doctor Who, by the way, is 300 times Chesterton's age. Suzanne is now the Doctor's granddaughter, Coburn's invention, because he was concerned at the dodginess of a young girl hanging about a junkyard with an old man. Lambert likes this idea. Newman hates it, and presumably says so without much diplomacy. 20th of June. Lambert, Tucker and Richard Martin engage in discussions about the technical feasibility of the show this week. There's an air of creative excitement mixed with a certain amount of dread. Unfortunately for them, the head honchos at the BBC continue to argue about the feasibility of this much-delayed show, with some complaining about the lack of scripts on which they can base their planning. 24th of June. The final key regular production team member, David Whittaker, has taken his place. A former actor and now scriptwriter with experience on soap, compact and adventure, Jerry Halliday, for the BBC, Whittaker, known to Wilson and currently working out of a caravan in the BBC car park, is brought in to script edit the series, licking stories into shape and ensuring that they fit into the general concept. 25th of June. While Newman fights fire with fire after a roasting from the planning department, Coburn has been revising episode one and drafting episodes two and three. The ship loses its rubbish name and instead doesn't have one. The Doctor's mind-bending fags have gone, Chesterton loses his initials and Miss McGovern becomes Miss Canning. Suzanne, or Findu Claire as the Doctor calls her, <clears throat> is only posing as the old man's granddaughter. She's a space princess in hiding. Doctor Who, like her, is an alien and Doctor Who is just the English translation of his name. He is a lord of the House of Duclair. He rescued the princess when she was a baby and has taken her away in the first space-time machine made by his people. Whitaker and Lambert are thinking what you're thinking. They're not too happy. In fact, Lambert asks her colleague, Terence Dudley, to come up with a short-minute replacement. Anyone familiar with Dudley's work will know that this is an act of some desperation. But it's too late. The caveman script will have to go ahead as a matter of necessity, and with it, its opening episode. Also today, a document based on Weber's work is sent out to prospective writers, in which the teachers are now, and finally, Ian Chesterton and Barbara Wright. July the 1st. Production dates have changed again, and so Tucker, due on holiday in Mallorca, 
cannot direct the first story, so Hussain, initially down for story two, is bumped up the schedule. Pinfield, a pipe-smoking jacket-and-tie man, is there to bring a bit of balance to the newcomer Lambert and the talented young maverick, albeit one trained by the corporation, Hussein, neither of whom smoke a pipe, and though they value his technical input, they largely ignore his artistic suggestions. Neither Lambert nor Hussein like the caveman idea. Anthony Coburn is clearly aware of this dislike and is getting disillusioned with the show. In addition, with the disbanding of the script department, on this day his contract as a staff member is terminated and he is recontracted as a freelancer to deliver the first two stories. July the 8th. Coburn gives Whittaker a revised version of episode one. The spaceship scenes have been altered, including a moment when the Doctor speaks into the machine's operating controls in an alien language. Lambert and Whittaker are happier with the script, though they feel Suzanne as princess needs a tweak in tone and that Chesterton, though much improved, is a trifle too beefy. July the 10th. With Lambert having had to repeatedly badger the design department to give her someone to take care of her show, she has finally allocated a set designer. Peter Brahatsky has been assigned, but a meeting with him today does not go well. He can only spare them half an hour today, during which he tells the production team that he's too busy to even start his work on Doctor Who for a fortnight. His brusque manner and dismissive attitude to the show does not endear him to Lambert. She's got a programme to make. July the 11th. During the casting process, Lambert has an idea. Film actor William Hartnell's tough guy image has been established in films like Brighton Rock, and he is a familiar television face thanks to his turn as Sergeant Major Bullimore in the ITV sitcom The Army Game. And sergeants have been something of a speciality that Hartnell is keen to break away from. In an attempt to do this, he has appeared in the film, released in 1963, which has given Lambert the idea he might be her man. Particularly impressed is she with his touching portrayal of the possibly homosexual old rugby scout in Lindsay Anderson's testosterone fueled study of flawed masculinity, This Sporting Life. Hartnell is telephoned by his agent, Terry Carney, today and told about Doctor Who. July the 12th. Warris Hussain and Verity Lambert woo William Hartnell over lunch and assuage his many concerns. Typecasting, playing an eccentric, working for the BBC, which, shocking considering his prolific career, he hasn't done for 25 years. It's a good day for the show, because Whittaker also gets a script from Coburn which has any references to Findu Clare and the Paladin removed and in which Suzanne is finally nailed down as Susan. Lambert approaches the French experimental music group Les Structures Sonores to do the theme tune, and they send her a demo. David Whittaker has shared a new series guide for prospective writers, which reflects many of the toings and froings between the production team, and which contains many aspects of the first episode, including Susan persuading the Doctor to give her a chance at life as a schoolgirl in 1963. She admires the people and the period, and this will enable her to create a sustained period of existence. She has a wide knowledge of some things and is lamentably ignorant of others. She also has a crush on Ian. The Doctor's ship is filled with bric-a-brac acquired on his travels, and it also has a year-ometer, but the controls are damaged during the first adventure, which means that the Doctor cannot use it and therefore cannot return Ian and Barbara home. Another crucial storylining edict is that the ship transports the travellers from place to place in time and space, but once they are there, they only have their wits to assist them. Whilst their mode of transport may be futuristic, they have no ray guns or sci-fi technology at their disposal. Also, they cannot make history themselves. Not one line. This document, which also outlines the first episode and the first two stories, 
is used to solicit writers, including future Doctor Who scribes Malcolm Hulk, Terry Nation and Robert Banks Stewart, although only one of those is successfully recruited for the series right now. The others will have to wait. July the 23rd. It's official. Doctor Who has a cast. William Hartnell signs on to play the Doctor. William Russell, a busy actor who had played the title role in ITC's 1956-57 series Sir Lancelot, is the only person considered for Ian Chesterton, and he accepts. And Carol Ann Ford, after various actresses have been auditioned, is asked to play Susan Foreman, having been spotted by Warris Hussain and brought to Lambert's attention. Jacqueline Hill, an actress friend of Lambert who is married to TV director Alvin Rakoff, like Newman, a Canadian émigré, is the only one who has yet to fully confirm, but she's looking odds-on to play Barbara Wright. July the 30th. A promotional document is issued for the show, saying it will premiere on the 16th of November. There's athletics on the 9th, which had been mooted. If the pilot, which is due to be made on the 27th of September, is deemed broadcastable. Les Structures Sonores have quoted too high a price. Instead, Lambert goes to the BBC Radiophonic Workshop, whose head, Desmond Briscoe, points her in the direction of someone who, like the writer of the first four episodes, is Australian. Ron Grainer. Grainer has been featured in a programme called Master of the Signature Tune, an apt title for a man who has provided memorable theme tunes for the likes of May Gray, Steptoe and Son, and That Was the Week That Was. Grainer is booked to produce the theme tune. The stipulation from Lambert is that it has to be something that can be realised electronically today. 20th of August, 1963. There is another experimental session of Signal HowlRound mounted, this one specifically with Doctor Who in mind. So this is where the first footage ever actually made specifically for Doctor Who is generated. And the 20th of August continues to be significant. It is the birthday not only of the seventh Doctor, Sylvester McCoy, who is 20 today, but also his companion ace, Sophie Aldred, who celebrates her first birthday as the cameras begin to roll, and Anthony Ainley, who played opposite them as their arch-nemesis the Master, who is turning 31. It is also the birthday of another science fiction hero, Andre Morel, who played the title role in Quatermass and the Pit, he's 54 today, and of 21st century Dalek operator Barnaby Edwards, although he won't be born for another six years. Presumably the fact that it's my other half's birthday is an elaborate attempt on her part to get my attention. But put it like this, no true sci-fi fan should have any candles or champagne left come August the 21st. Anyway, back to August the 20th, and this one, the one in 1963. Graphic designer Bernard Lodge, one of the great heroes of Doctor Who, we'll be meeting him a lot later, designed the logo and is also here on this day. According to Lodge, speaking to me exclusively for this broadcast, his job was to provide some lettering that would be animated in a way that suited the electronics. At that time, I'd become quite clever at animating by reflecting off curved mirrors and running under glass or whatever. But when I saw the amazing effects, I suggested that surely there was a way we could pipe it through the system. That suggestion was my main contribution to the first title sequence. I didn't realise that to put my lettering through the effects, they would have to employ a main studio at White City for half a day. So on the day, I turned up with my little Doctor Who 12 by 9 inch card. In the control room were a group of people that I didn't know. I learned later that the main man who controlled the effects was Ben Palmer. So I watched him as he made all the adjustments and tried various inputs such as mirroring the type. These efforts mean that for a brief moment on screen, it looks like the programme is called Dr Oho, uh, which I note here because it's something we've all thought at some point, isn't it? Anyway, Bernard Lodge continues. Ben Palmer was a brilliant technician and I did not in any way control the session. The session was an untidy thing. When it seemed to be going well, they cued the film recording to start, but then the electronics faded and so on. But it was astounding when we saw the Doctor Who type 
create that Rorschach kind of display. An attempt is made to feed a face into these pictures, and the results are terrifying. But the use of a struck match or a pen torch helps to produce the amorphous clouds of interdimensional space-time, or whatever it is, that transports the viewer into the brave new world of Doctor Who. With Norman Taylor, the technique's pioneer, apparently on hand to provide the light source today. The footage from this test still survives. Some more graphics work, captions, etc., is carried out later in a short session on the 31st of August, and the title sequence footage is then assembled by editor Richard Barclay at Ealing Studios on the 3rd of September. The opening sequence is ultimately edited by John Griffiths, who is the pilot's eventual film editor. July the 30th. Rex Tucker goes on holiday. It is the last that the Doctor Who production office will see of him for quite some time. He asks to be moved on, having clashed with Lambert. And so some more of the old goes out as the new continue to be ushered in in order to dress Doctor Who, the programme, if not the character, in their clothes. September the 13th. Ushering in the police box proves to be somewhat more difficult. An experimental session today to see how best to materialise and dematerialise the TARDIS at Lime Grove Studio D is hampered because the prop is too tall to fit into the Lime Grove lift. 18th of September 1963. The Norman K Ensemble, seven musicians recorded by the serial's incidental composer Norman K himself, lay down the story's incidental music, recording at the Camden Theatre in a nighttime session. 19th of September 1963. The receding London, seen on the scanner, and the TARDIS in the desert are filmed at Stage 3 at Ealing on this day. The TARDIS light flashes, a shadow is cast to herald the end of Episode 1, and spears are thrown for the climax of Episode 4, which makes this the first footage not used in the first episode to be produced. 20th of September 1963. A photo call is done on a mock-up set of the school and the junkyard. Yep, look closely. It's not the actual sets from the episode. They haven't been made yet. The photo call features the four regulars. Sometimes it's worth just having a look at these shots of Hartnell and Ford in particular. Go on, you probably half remember them. Dig them out. Give them a fresh eye. Inky blackness. Hartnell in his astrakhan hat, looking mysterious and dramatic. They're magical. They also give us a glimpse of Susan's leather hat and light coat combo that, frankly, doesn't get enough of an outing in the episode. Whitaker accepts Coburn's four scripts for The Tribe of Gum. Any further rewrites will now be done by Whitaker. No one is especially happy with Coburn's stuff. The very concept of the caveman story hasn't won much love and is being proceeded with out of necessity and the Australian starts to feel frozen out of the Doctor Who inner circle. His second script doesn't seem to be working out either. Saturday the 21st of September 1963. Rehearsals begin for the pilot, taking place at the Territorial Army Drill Hall in Hammersmith and continuing there until Thursday the 26th, bar Sunday, of course. Episodes are rehearsed like a play and then performed as continuously as possible on the Friday night when they are then committed to camera with any pre-filmed sequences slotted in where necessary. Pre-filming is done if sequences are complicated involving either action or big sets or exteriors. Post-production and editing are kept to a minimum. Friday the 27th of September 1963. On this day, Harold Macmillan is Prime Minister of the UK, but only for another three weeks. She Loves You by the Beatles is number one in the charts, and the actress Lisette Anthony is being born. Her mother, Bernadette Milnes, has no idea that this is happening during the birth of a BBC sci-fi legend, although she herself has already witnessed one because she was a cast member of the Quatermass Experiment. Oh, 
and President John F. Kennedy is still alive and looking forward to a trip to Dallas, as the pilot episode of Doctor Who is recorded in Studio D of Lime Grove Studios in Shepherd's Bush, West London. Late September, back in 63. Oh, what a night. And that's when the trouble really starts. The what? Let's start with that music. Although it was composed by Ron Grainer, it was arranged by Delia Derbyshire at the BBC Radiophonic Workshop, an in-house bevy of composers and sound experimenters, audio boffins who treated notes like chemical elements, pulling and pushing them and mixing them with other things to see if they'd explode. Grainer himself admitted that he took no personal credit for the unearthly quality of the finished piece, which sounds like the haunting of the echoey corridors of space and time. In fact, it sounds like nothing or no instrument, sucking you into an audio landscape of unfamiliarity, and yet not so discordant as to be lacking in musicality or rhythm. There's a reason they've never changed it. Another sound genius, Brian Hodgson, whose work on 1960s Doctor Who, as we will see, is more important than is often documented, managed to give the sound of the TARDIS taking off, give you the impression that the whole fabric of space and time is being rent asunder by a Heath Robinson dimensional engine. And he did so by scraping his mum's back door key up and down a piano wire and mucking about with the results. And then there's the story, setting the scene for a series now approaching its 60th birthday. It's an episode so familiar now, and yet in this iteration, strangely off-kilter. Received wisdom has it that the production is a bit of a mess, but although there are technical problems, it is still a beguiling and atmospheric piece of telly. It certainly retains the strangeness of 60s Doctor Who, and its unfamiliarity emphasises the weirdness, and I contend that Doctor Who would never again be as consistently weird a programme as in the Hartnell era. Anyway, the pilot is enchanting, because the familiar is so unfamiliar. We've been told a million times that the music has a thunderclap that doesn't make it into the final mix used a month later, and yes, there it is. But doesn't the whole thing also seem more echoey as well? The Wii U's a little more sustained and haunting. Sound guru Mark Ayres assures me that the edit on the pilot is definitely different from that on the eventual episode. So yes, my elongated almost plaintive we use are not my imagination. And there's nothing worse than an imagined we you, elongated and plaintive or otherwise. And Mark also tells me that the thunderclap wasn't on the edited assembly anyway and was, curiously, therefore added in studio. And don't you just love the whole backstory that the fictional band get? John Smith and the Common Men, headed by John Smith, real name, the Right Honourable Aubrey Waits, a.k.a. Chris Waits and the Carolers. How much thought has gone into that beguiling and yet utterly plausible barrage of pop factoids unleashed by our hip schoolmaster? In Coburn's first draft, there's similar attention to detail, but the names have been changed. Suzanne is listening to Ollie Typhoon, which her teacher, Chesterton, points out is actually a pseudonym for someone called Fred Grubb. And yes, there are odd, odd moments that would be ironed out. As the camera follows the policeman in the opening scene, for example, it oddly pans away from him to linger on, well, I don't know, it looks like a bit of paper, perhaps it has nuts scribbled on it, before rejoining him at the gates of I.M. Foreman's junkyard. Later, Ian and Barbara struggle to get into the classroom where Susan does her offbeat alien dancing. Barbara seems to have to kick something back into place as she comes through the door. I think her shoe gets stuck or something. Whilst in their car-bound conversation outside the junkyard, there's a wandering stagehand outside. When Ian, as scripted, falls over in the junkyard and breaks his torch, he wasn't intended to take a prop clothes dummy with him. A short time later, a camera, following its prescribed course to track the teachers to the TARDIS doors, clatters into it because 
No one's had time to pick it up. Oh, talking of props, there's a moment in the junkyard involving Ian and an unsettling grinning mask that isn't repeated in the ultimate programme, and that's a shame. It's a disconcerting, incongruous image. Rictus jollity leering out of the darkness, as contrasting and jarring a synthesis as, say, a spaceship inside a police box. Something else not repeated is an abandoned effect, the audience being able to glimpse the TARDIS interior from outside the police box doors. This was never again attempted in the series until becoming a commonplace occurrence in the show after its 2005 resurrection because, I guess, it had got slightly easier to do by then. The second half of this episode was essentially rejected twice. You wait for the chance to turn down the first ever scene set inside a future TV icon and two come along at once. But before it has even got to Sidney Newman, the production team elected, immediately upon completion of the first recording of the episode, to have another go at mounting the drama from the moment Barbara enters the TARDIS. This was a good place to go from for two reasons. One, it was the place of a scheduled recording break and a change of set, and two, it's when most, if not all, of the show started to go wrong. As soon as our heroes enter the TARDIS, they hit trouble, with the doors banging and flapping about and having to be rescued from behind by stagehands when they're out of shot. Hartnell's brilliant face-off with Ford as the Doctor and Susan argue about whether it is safe or not to leave Ian and Barbara in possession of knowledge of time travel is marred by the lead actor stumbling over his lines and the whole thing is a bit messy. So as soon as they are done, they have another go. We see them try the entrance again. It doesn't quite work. Sound effects not ready, perhaps. We hear Jacqueline Hill say, Douglas, speaking to floor manager Douglas Camfield, who will become an important figure in the show's history. And then they go again. And the end results are much more fluid and with fewer flapping portals, though you can see a seen man's shadow silhouetted through the doors as he holds them together in take two. Even so, even with a more polished version of the second section of the episode in the can, the finished result was deemed unsuitable for broadcast, both on a technical and conceptual level. Sidney Newman took producer Lambert and director Hussein for a Chinese meal and told them to make the episode again. The changes instigated before the next attempt are pretty well known. In the pilot, Hartnell is definitely harsher, more direct, a more sinister doctor, devoid of the fluting, whimsical laugh he does to convey either contempt or absent-mindedness. Caroline Ford has a distant look in her eyes that is quite disorienting, emphasising her alien quality, almost revelling in it, giving it a defiant, sensual edge. The scene between the Doctor and Susan, absent from the eventual episode, as they discuss their interlopers whilst in sharp focus, the subjects of their argument, a blur behind them, is great stuff, especially on take two when Hartnell's more sure of his lines. The Doctor's arguments for not letting Ian and Barbara out of the ship are harsher, but perhaps more compelling than those in the finished episode. The idea that Ian and Barbara will be footsteps in a time they don't belong is beautifully evocative and strange, and the Doctor comparing them to Romans with gunpowder gives the time travellers a lofty detachment, an alien dissonance from the time in which they are stranded, the schoolteachers they have to contend with, and indeed, the viewers who are watching. Elsewhere, the Doctor calls Ian schoolmaster a lot, which gives him an aloof, dispassionate, alien air. It's better than the B-movie Earth People that Susan tosses out at one point, Indeed, one of the great things about 60s Doctor Who is that when it does spacey and futuristic, it tries to be philosophical rather than pulpy, and it's always got a tatty police box in the background to ensure that ramshackle charm is never far away, no matter how futuristic things are getting. Oh, and yes, the unbroadcast pilot was broadcast. As mentioned in the intro, on the 26th of August 1991, it was shown as part of the Lime Grove story, a repeat event to mark the closure of Lime Grove Studios and to celebrate the programmes made there. Celebrate, of course, means to treat with mocking disdain or barely disguised patronising contempt. In the case of the pilot, its landmark first ever showing on TV was preceded by a clip 
done in the style of a show called The Staggering Stories of Ferdinand de Bargos, which used old clips with comedy voices added to create new and silly scenarios. And so Jack Warner's Dixon of Doc Green appeared, telling viewers that, ho ho, his police box had one day vanished, a shame as his sandwiches had been in it. He then did a William Hartnell slash Norman Hartnell joke. Norman Hartnell was a fashion designer whose topicality in 1991 could be measured by the fact that he had died in 1979. It's a joke which is pretty niche, and that's coming from the presenter of this podcast. So call me old-fashioned. I mean, I am, so do. But what followed might have benefited from a bit of context, such as the fact that it was a hitherto untransmitted trial run, you know, so that the viewers could be informed and educated as well as entertained. Those old things. Anyway, they decided to show the clunkier first take of the TARDIS, probably more out of laziness than malice, but the effect will have been the same. The version of the pilot on the VHS release, The Hartnell Years, released two months earlier, at least had the courtesy to use the more technically accomplished second take of the TARDIS stuff. The VHS release of The Edge of Destruction in 2000 also included the pilot, but had all of the footage on, both versions of the TARDIS scene and the attempt abandoned after mere seconds. The DVD release as part of the beginning box set, released in January 2006 in the UK, is a bit confusing because the play all section has a morphed version of the pilot on directly before the actual episode one, which is a rather odd decision. This morphed version is a combination of the best takes of the pilot with digital trickery to iron out some of the mistakes, and it's an interesting curio. It should just have been somewhere else on the disc. The uninitiated could easily think they were watching the genuine first episode. The full recording, thankfully, is also included somewhere more sensible. The Who. For this section, I'll be delving into the people behind those names we see roll up at the end of the episodes. Our subject today, though, was never credited on any episode of Doctor Who, but without him, the show wouldn't be the one we know and love today. And he is credited on internal BBC documentation, So let's etch his name in stone, even if he didn't quite make it to the Stone Age. C. E. Webber. Bunny Webber, as he was known, was involved in the genesis of the show and quite possibly came up with some of its key elements, but by the time it was being broadcast, he was gone from it, never to return. But it was his document in which the words Doctor Who are written for the first time. A character he describes as A frail old man, lost in space and time, suspicious and capable of sudden malignance. Bunny was born in 1909 as Cecil Edwin Webber. He hated the name Cecil, and his habit of running about like a rabbit gained him his nickname. A precociously bright young man, albeit one with an anarchist streak, he won a place at Oxford, which his mother wouldn't let him take up, something for which he never forgave her. But Bunny had perhaps a rabbit courage and he dabbled in acting whilst working reluctantly in banking before the outbreak of World War II. During that conflict, he joined the government censorship bureau and when it ended, he enrolled at the London School of Economics. His first play to be produced was mounted by the illustrious Kenneth Tynan before he became the famous theatre critic who was the first to use the F-word on British television. Tynan, like Bunny, a precocious talent, staged Webber's A Citizen of the World for one night only at the Phoenix Theatre. But it was successfully received enough to transfer to the Lyric Hammersmith, with a cast that included Roger Livesey and Diana Dawes. It generated fantastic write-ups and was a great launchpad for Tynan, who never looked back. Bunny, however, loped along. His 1951 play Right Side Up was shortlisted for the Arts Festival of Britain play competition, the requirements for which were that the plays have a theme of contemporary significance and no previous professional performance. Sadly, it didn't go down well when it was performed, and his name was never seen at the West End again. His work was done regionally, however. In 1957, Be Good, Sweet Maid premiered at the Birmingham Repertory Theatre. It was a play about, and I quote, 
a maladjusted child at variance with the world. So if not unearthly, certainly an outsider. A young Albert Finney was in the cast, as well as The Visitation's Michael Robbins and Doctor Who and the Silurians' Nancy Jackson, wife of the director Bernard Hepton. The play, said the stage, follows the technique of television or the film, and that the author treats it as episodic. And one reason for this televisual structure might be that Bunny had started writing for television in 1951. He specialised in children's drama serials, particularly ones with the word silver in them. The Silver Swan, 1953, Lucky Silver, 1956, and The Silver Sword, 1957, which featured future Who heroes Fraser Hines and Barry Letts in the cast. On stage again, and in 1958, his play The Frying Pan, which starred a young actor called Richard Martin, who ended up directing key episodes of the first two seasons of Doctor Who and was on hand during its development, was staged in Coventry. The Frying Pan is set in a coffee bar, which ends up being transported through space by an aged alien being. There is an eccentric old professor who turns out to be Merlin. Yeah, Bunny was certainly onto something. His first episode for the TARDIS team was called, beguilingly, Nothing at the End of the Lane. He then attempted a story breakdown for the show's mooted first adventure, the idea that would never go away of shrinking the principles and having them under duress in a giant, to them, science lab, and so terrorised by a giant caterpillar and spider, a pupil's compass and a microscope lens. This story was dropped, but Bunny's influence on the opening instalment eventually put together by Anthony Coburn with finishing touches by David Whittaker, meant that BBC internal documentation gave him a nod for his contributions to the shape and ideas contained within Doctor Who's first night. Doctor Who, he had said, must be adaptable to any SF science fiction story so that we do not have to reject stories because they fail to fit into our setup. He also suggested that we must add feminine interest and that we create ad hoc villains for each story as needed. It is the Western setup in this respect, constant heroes and a fresh villain each time. Although his name never made it to the screen, his DNA is all over those first 25 minutes of Doctor Who and much that has come since. He never worked on the show again after its launch, but he wrote for Soap Opera The Newcomers, for Thorndike, and for 1969's Merry-Go-Round. Sadly, his lifelong mistrust of, ironically, doctors, meant that he hadn't sought medical help for what turned out to be pancreatic cancer. And so, aged just 60, in July 1969, Bunny Webber came prematurely to the end of the lane. So what's to be made of the pilot? Even though I suppose it must be considered a disaster, stumbles and technical faults after all made it into many future broadcast episodes without them being pulled, the raw material is so good that the pilot is nonetheless an extremely rewarding watch. Not just from an historical point of view, where it gives us a stark indication of what so very nearly was and which specific elements of the production team's initial concepts were deemed to be askew. Susan's Rorschach inkblot, which gives an approximation of the TARDIS console, is a suitably weird and offbeat moment, but was probably rightly dropped, as it only really makes sense if you know what the TARDIS console looks like, and at that point, the audience doesn't. Carol Ann Ford's fluff that John Smith and the common men have moved from 2 to 19, I mean 19 to 2, could easily be seen as a genuine mistake by the alien schoolgirl, not quite fully at grips with the directions of the British pop charts. I mean, she clearly hasn't been buying records if she doesn't know what the currency is. She hasn't been shopping in five months, blimey. It's frankly amazing that this, with both takes of the TARDIS scene, still survives, and we must count ourselves extremely lucky to be able to see Doctor Who when it was Doctor not 
quite there yet. Its differences are largely very subtle, but there is something slightly spooky and unsettling about watching this thing we weren't supposed to see. The cast, rubbing their bruises from a difficult and problematic dress rehearsal, could at least have gone home and told their loved ones, well, it didn't go very well, but huh, at least no one will ever see it. If only they knew. It's probably been watched and re-watched more than any other episode of any other TV show they ever made that wasn't Doctor Who. And I suppose we, the fans, we take it for granted because, for us, it's always been there, but this is a fascinating document, presented warts and all, and rewards us with repeat viewings and forensic scrutiny. The BBC didn't keep the original take of another episode remounted in just a few weeks' time, but more of that later. So what a glorious thing to have. It's a time capsule of when Doctor Who was a slightly different programme from the one it became. A pilot with an incorrect course. And it's not such a technical nightmare. We'd still be pretty proud of it as a first episode. That it was improved upon, well, we can only be grateful. But the ur-unearthly child has a lot to recommend it. Aye, there's the point. That's it for now. Coming next, the ship takes flight again. So what happened to make it go so right? What was still wrong? And who did what, where and when? And what was the Kenneth Williams guy doing? Actually, I don't answer that, sorry. Thanks for listening to Doctor Who, Too Much Information. There is a supplemental podcast to this episode which contains even more arcane facts. A biography of the man whose face was used to test the titles. In fact, a biography of the man whose face everyone said had been used to test the titles but turned out not to actually be the right man. And a biography of the man whose face did get used in the test for the titles. Uh, everything you need to know about the Arthi Nelson group and why their name is often got wrong, and a brief dip into the series Night Errant Limited, which seemed to be the talk of the production team when they were preparing to make Doctor Who. Doctor Who Too Much Information is written and narrated by me, Toby Hayden. With thanks to Mark Ayres, Peter Crocker, Richard Bignall, Chris Boyle, Bernard Lodge, Steve Roberts and Andrew Pixley. The music was specially composed for this podcast by Wayne Shepherd. Next episode, An Unearthly Child, actual version, or A Cold, Wet Night in November. researchers whose work I have picked over and collated and cross-referenced to come up with much of what you have just heard. Richard Molesworth's Origins documentary on the BBC beginning DVD box set is one of the best documentaries ever made about Doctor Who. It's really atmospheric, very detailed and has lots of lovely clips. The production subtitles on that disc are the usual brilliance from Martin Wiggins. Richard Bignall's Nothing at the End of the Lane magazine is now available in PDF format online at a ludicrously cheap price and features the sort of arcane detail and fastidious research that is breathtaking. How Stammers and Walker, with their definitive books on the 60s and each doctor in their handbooks, deserve much praise for shaping our basic understanding of the developmental story of the entire show behind the scenes and Jeremy Bentham's Doctor Who The Early Years is a vital and valuable record in both words and glorious pictures. Andrew Pixley's archives in Doctor Who magazine, Doctor Who The Complete History, the TARDIS wiki page 
and Shannon Patrick Sullivan's Complete History of Time Travel have also all been very, very valuable for reference. I walk in the shadows of giants whose bags are stuffed full of photocopies and whose houses are doubtless filled with bump. I acknowledge and am grateful to all of them. Please consider supporting these podcasts, which do take approximately forever to put together and are done single-handedly by me, by becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash Toby Haydock, or by making a one-off donation to kopi.com forward slash Toby Haydock. And if you can review and rate positively at all those pesky outlets, then that will help. And when it's worked and everybody knows about them and loves them, then I'll stop having to ask you to do it. But we're not there yet, not by a long chalk. For more stuff generally, check out www.tobyhaydoke.com. <laughs>